Welcome to the Unconventional Path, entrepreneurship and innovation stories and ideas. Hello, I'm Bala Musitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. Today, we are joined by Dan Burkaw, who is a serial technology entrepreneur. His current company is NAMI ML, which is a machine learning company that uses technology to improve mobile commerce using in-app subscriptions. Dan is a serial entrepreneur and has been very successful in founding several companies. Bailey, this sounds really interesting. You know, I have a kind of a soft spot for learning more about machine learning and AI and things like this. So it sounds really cool. Let's jump right into the interview. I'm well. How are you today, Dan? Not bad. I didn't know if I should accept through video. So here we are. I'm glad I did. Yep. Uh, I only record audio, so uh, no worries about the video. Uh, but I like to uh, see people that I'm chatting with. It, it sort of uh, helps with uh, sort of visual cues as well when we're, when we're having a conversation. Great. So, yeah. So, Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So uh, I was reading uh, your bio here, and it says you're a serial entrepreneur who's founded four companies and sort of each on the forefront of a major technology wave. First one being open source, second one the smartphone, uh, next one cloud computing, and now machine learning. So have you always been an entrepreneur? Yeah, basically always. Um, I uh, And where that came from is that, uh, you know, growing up in, in the 90s and learning about computers and sort of... You know, Early BBSs and our school had a, a dial-up system that was Unix-based. So I was able to, and I was just captivated by by technology from an early age, and basically wanted to learn everything I possibly could uh, with all my free time. Yeah, and um, and so where that led was just a, a set of skills around computers um, that uh, helped me early in my kind of high school career be kind of marketable to uh, folks that needed to have a website built in the early days of websites. And that kind of led to becoming a Unix system administrator for a internet hosting company. And that led to uh, uh, the open source company where I had these skills around Linux that uh, uh, kind of turned into a commercial opportunity with with, uh, my first co-founder, um, and so that's just kind of where it's all progressed is that my love of learning things about computers has just led to these kind of skills that uh, have found a home in a business. Yeah, yeah. That I've wanted to start. Well, th- those skills are very marketable, particularly in today's world. Uh, but what, what, makes you, what makes you pick the path of uh, I want to start my own business versus I want to go work for Google or Apple or, you know, whoever, a large Fortune 1000 company? Well, in my early career, it was not a, I, I, it, it wasn't a choice as cleanly as you, you, as you stated. Um, it was just where, where I ended up in a, in a certain sense. You just, the inertia of the relationships and the skills and the online communities that I was part of just took me there versus sitting down at the desk one day and saying, you know, I could do this, or on the other hand, I could do that. Now, certainly as I've gotten older and, and done done this a number of times, um, 
I, I have faced that that choice a little bit more specifically, and um, I just gravitate. Yeah, I've spent uh, ten years at Apple for a period, at Oracle for a period, and the thing of it is that I just like understanding the whole widget in a certain way. And when you work in a big company, um, you you don't get a. Yeah, I mean, you can understand the whole widget, but your your influence is really around something narrow. And ha- having built a lot of skills around entrepreneurship and the in computing, um, I like that whole system idea. I like understanding all of the pieces and how they fit. Whether I have the particular skills needed to be the best person on the team doing all of those things, that's not the case. It's not that I want to be an entrepreneur so I can do everything, but but having that 30,000-foot view of, of kind of the the thing that we're doing, why we're doing it, what the pieces are involved so that I can jump into the weeds of an engineering conversation or zoom out and think about marketing and how do we get in front of people. I like that. I like the real cross-discipline, cross-functional elements of entrepreneurship in a way that in a corporate environment, I've just never found, um, maybe I've not been at the right level. You know, maybe that's a level issue. If I was a senior vice president at Apple, I'd probably have a lot of, a lot of, high altitude on their business, yes. um, but never had the opportunity to be at a level like that in one of these uh, large companies. Yeah. So uh, being the founder or co-founder of, of numerous companies, you know, on, on day one, it's you or, and, and you maybe in a few other people at best. And then, then the company evolves and, and grows possibly. How, how do you, how did you find your role changing as the company grew and matured? Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of the same in a way of like that when you in the in the earliest days, you're literally responsible for sort of everything, and, and and whether that means and you're always responsible for everything, but but you're just you're more in the trench. And so let me give you one example. Um, in the early days of the iPhone and the App Store, I started an agency called Double Encore, which was one of the first uh, mobile app development shops really around this new, you know, the the app economy, which is now you know 12, 12 years old, but. At the time, the thesis was, hey, there's going to be an explosion of apps, um, and companies are not necessarily going to have the skill set in-house to build these things. So let's build an agency where we bring together great engineers that know how to build iOS apps and later Android apps and other things, um, and let's um, go find some great companies that need this skill set and, and work with them. Um, and so in the earliest days of that company, uh, I was involved in every single project, and sometimes I even dabbled with a little bit of code, although that was usually when there was a deadline approaching and they needed an extra hand to fix a bug. Um, but I was certainly very involved in you know, winning the business and making sure the client was happy, even sending the invoices, depositing the checks, running the payroll, making sure you know my people are happy. Um, and then later as we grew, you know, we got to about 20, 25 people and that's when things really start to change because now there's enough inertia in the organization without the, the kind of person like me being needed for everything that you start to kind of, uh, uh, lose a little bit of that touch with the entire organization. So people started, there was enough people where they're going to lunch and I'm not going to lunch with the team. They're hiring, they're making hiring recommendations um, through a process to hire a new candidate 
and I've not even met the new candidate, right? And so you kind of get past 25 and then things get a little more more complicated and, and your role changes to, oh my goodness, now I'm responsible for the payroll of a lot of people with a lot of families and, and their own obligations. And so my number one goal uh, at that stage really was how do I keep the lights on? Not in a way where, well, if the lights get turned off, there's only two or three of us that uh, are going to go find something new. But now there's now there's dozens of people that have to go find some some way to uh, have a livelihood. That's just a, a shocking set of responsibility. Right, right. And and sort of what prepared you in sort of your previous jobs and experiences to sort of take on that responsibility and and not sort of run away from it. I'm not sure anything really prepared me for it. Uh, in that first company that I did uh, called TerraSoft, it was an open source uh, Linux company. Um, some of our clients were pretty uh, high stakes. So we worked with a lot of national laboratories like Los Alamos and Sandia. We had um, a lot of government customers in the military, so the US Air Force, US Navy. Um, and so you kind of feel a, a weight of the customers and their what their work their mission is at a, a you know a level of of stakes that um, is 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 not trivial. So you know, I wasn't the one in that company bearing all the the weight of the payroll and the team and the billings and all of that. I was more focused on the engineering. Um, but working with customers of that caliber, I think you kind of get a you feel the weight of it in a way that if I had just started my career working on, you know, a website for something more casual in nature, not that that's not, you know, a valid thing to do, but I maybe wouldn't have been as prepared for quote unquote, the stakes. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you've recently started your, your fourth company. And so the starting companies, let me, let me divide this question into two parts, do part one first. So do starting companies get easier? Are there aspects that, that are get easier in, in kind of starting another company? Yeah, there's, there's parts that are more tactical in nature. You're not wrapped up as much as should this be an LLC or an Inc? And how do I set up a business bank account? And, you know, are we going to raise money or not raise money? I mean, you kind of have worked through some of those things already. Um, but for me... Um, it's actually gotten harder in a lot of ways. And I think part of that is that each one of the, the three leading up to now um, has had a degree of success. You know, they've not been wild successes, but they've been successful. And so I've struggled with each subsequent one of, of feeling a little bit of that imposter syndrome of what caused that success? Why were they successful? How do I replicate that for this one in a way that's way more stressful than when I was 17 years old starting the first one? And I wasn't thinking about, is this going to be a success or not? I was thinking about, hey, this is a fun thing I'm doing with the skills that I have. And my, my, my time horizon wasn't more than you know a month ahead of, of me in, in terms of what I'm thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that was the second part of my question. What, what parts have gotten harder? 
because because clearly it is a journey and and some things i think get easier as we gain experience and some things get more challenging so what, what's your new company uh, tell us about the new business yeah so the company is called nami like tsunami and uh, it was born out of uh the last company that we did number three which was called push.io and push.io was a cloud platform for delivering push notifications to mobile apps. Now I say that and everybody says, okay, I know what a push notification is. But when we started the company, nobody knew what a push notification was. So our first battle was just simply to try to educate the market about, yep. uh, about these things. Um, we were fortunate in that that company was acquired uh, by Oracle and I ended up at Oracle for a number of years inside of a group called the Oracle Marketing Cloud. And I got to see how uh, companies are deploying different marketing tactics for their products or services, you know, how this world of, of multi-channel, so where you're marketing through the web and through a mobile phone and through, you know, advertising and through email campaigns, how all of that is, is, is done. And, um, and my co-founder and I, Joe, uh, uh, and myself, Joe Pizzillo, uh, my co-founder of Push.io, who is part of NAMI, um, we, we were looking at a number, uh, we did, we did our tour of duty there and we, uh, we're trying to figure out what to do next, which is a whole story about how you even arrive at that. Um, but we, we saw this opportunity around some of the transition that was going on in the app economy. And what that transition was, is that, uh, you know, now 10 years plus in, um, instead of just investing to, you know, build an app and see and use it as kind of a marketing tool and kind of see where it goes. Companies are now investing orders of magnitude more dollars into these things, these experiences, and you can't just do that and and um, not think about monetization. So what does that mean? It means that the the app economy has shifted increasingly to subscription based uh, uh, economy. And from our experience building kind of the technical plumbing around mobile applications and mobile experiences, as well as being inside of a marketing company, the thing that we saw was that nobody was servicing um, uh, companies that are trying to sell through subscriptions. And the thing about a subscription is that it's, it's, a, it's a journey, it's a life cycle. So somebody signs up, they use the product for a while. If they like the product, they renew. If at some point they don't like the product or it's no longer meeting their needs, they might cancel, right? And so there's these moments that happen in that life cycle where, uh, where you as the, the brand, um, if you were doing things very smartly, uh, you would try to use these moments to market more effectively to your subscribers to keep them engaged, to keep them using the product, keep them from canceling. If they want to cancel, okay, make it easy, but then try to win them back at some point. And so what we're trying to do with NAMI, long-winded way of saying it, is that we're trying to build um, a marketing system built around the subscription economy. Uh, because subscriptions are different than marketing a one-time purchase. And, uh, and we think the world, we think marketers that, that go from selling something that's e-commerce e oriented, let's say, um, that then come and start to want to grow and build subscription businesses, they really don't have the tools they need um, to be successful. Yeah. Well, so subscription uh, business models have been around for a long time. 
right? I mean, newspapers, magazines were probably yeah. some of the first, right? So what, what's new? What, what are you bringing to the table that, that sort of, you know, people haven't, haven't uh, talked about in the past? Well, there's a few things. One is that, uh, yes, there's been subscription. I mean, we were, I was just talking to my co-founder about this earlier. You know, in a way, if you're renting an apartment and you have a lease, well, that has, that's a subscription in a way. And uh, you might renew the lease at the end of the term or you might cancel. Um, so you're right. There, everything's kind of in, in, our, in our life, not everything, but almost everything could be looked at through the lens of a subscription. I think that the, one of the fundamental things that's different is that it's, we're now in this multi-channel world where you might acquire a subscription through a smart TV, but then want to use the subscription on a website or on your phone. And so, uh, or conversely, you might buy on the web and want to use it on. And so where you purchase the subscription and where you want to use it isn't always the same. And in fact, you may want to use a subscription in a bunch of different places. So that just creates a lot of complexity that didn't exist in, in the newspaper example where, okay, well, you know, you, you sent the check in every month or you paid online and that physical thing would show up. It was sort of a very clean, you know, experience. Um, and so that's one thing that, that is different that necessitates a new solution. In addition, we have, because a lot of these new generation of, of subscriptions are built around devices, uh, be it again, phones and tablets and computers and smart TVs and these kinds of things. Uh, we, so collectively I'll just call those edge devices. Uh, devices connected to the internet that have some smarts in them. It means that we've got a set of capabilities that that um, that you wouldn't necessarily have if you were working selling a subscription just directly on a website or or something physical like we've talked about. Um, and so this is another area and where the machine learning comes into uh, what we're doing at NAMI, which is that we can now run with the last few generations of iPhone class devices, you can now run machine learning on the device itself. So these algorithms that used to be, and it's interesting, back to my open source days, part of what we were selling to those government agencies were supercomputer clusters that were made up of Macintosh computers strung together with networking and Linux and open source because what, what these agencies wanted to be able to do is run these algorithms as fast as possible. Instead of spending the budget on Cray supercomputers, they found that it was actually more cost-effective to buy individual computers, you know, consumer computers, but link them together into a, a grid. Um, but now we can run these algorithms, very sophisticated algorithms, on you know, a phone that doesn't require you to have a cluster. And so what we've thought about in that regard from, from what NAMI's doing, you know, these algorithms can now unlock your phone instantaneously by looking at your face. So that's a use case. Doing all sorts of cool things around photography. Um, but our use case is that, man, if somebody's using one of these experiences and is part of a subscription kind of life cycle um, on one of these devices, what we can do with our algorithms is both try to understand in real time if somebody is using a free experience and likely to become a, a subscriber. So do they have a propensity to purchase the subscription? 
um, which is important because there's a lot of freemium uh, experiences out there. Or uh, they're using the experience and uh, you know the key moment that the brand cares about is renewal. Well, what if the user is using it, but their kind of engagement pattern is going down over time? Our algorithms running on the device in real time can um, detect potential or kind of be, be an early warning system for churn. And that's really important because it gives the marketers that, that, that we sell to um, an opportunity to get ahead of churn instead of what usually happens out there, which is they figure out pretty late that somebody's going to churn and then they start beating them over the head with email or push notification to try to claw them back. But it's an uphill battle because it's pretty, pretty late in the game. Yeah, yeah. So while you were uh, talking about that, it reminded me of two things. So uh, early in the 80s, very early in the 80s, I worked at IBM Research. And uh, we used to talk about machine learning and Lisp. I used to dabble in Lisp a little bit. So one of the early machine learning languages, uh, so to speak. And uh, I remember we did one of the first uh, grid computing systems there, parallel computing systems, where we took a bunch of PCs and we linked them all together. Because uh, I remember in the building we were in, in the research building, everybody had a PC on their desk. Well, between the hours of 11 o'clock at night and 5 in the morning, nobody was using those. <laughs> so we had a project where we linked all of those together, and we were working out you know, the algorithms to how to, how to take a, a complex problem and divide it up and distribute it amongst all of those PCs and then you know, run that through the the machine. So it was kind of, kind of interesting. You're, you're bringing back memories to me here as we're having this conversation. Well, it's just really interesting how in a way, you know, nothing's really changed, right? right. It's, it's it, the same things are happening. It's just the form factors and it's a different device, and, you know, right? Because this is one device inside this device is chipsets that are parallelized. That's right. So it's not just one discrete chip, you know, that's how they've been able to create the performance they have on these things. So it's just, you know, that's the thing that you, back to the question of, you know, what's, what's harder? Well, it's not necessarily harder, but one of the learnings over a period of a career is that, you know, things do repeat themselves. They just, they look a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent point. So how do you, as an entrepreneur, how do you recognize opportunities? And, and, and what's the trigger that says, okay, I'm going to act on this one and I'm not going to act on these four. I wish I was better at that uh, because, uh, and people always say like, it, 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 it's conventional wisdom in startup land is that you should solve a problem that you feel yourself. So for example, I just, uh, within the last three weeks, um, my first child was born. And um, what's interesting about that from the entrepreneurship perspective is that every day of the chaos in my home now around having a newborn, I feel this acute pain around how do we make baby happy? Is baby hungry? Is, does diaper need to be, you know, all these things. And I could just see myself wanting to buy magic solution, magic elixirs for all of these, these problems very acutely. I mean, when you're in the middle of the night and, and there you have you're lacking sleep, you would do almost anything right. to get some sleep, right? So I think that's kind of what they mean in in this start of conventional wisdom of you know solve a problem that you're experiencing, and that's and that's good and 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 I I don't 
uh, I don't mean to say that that's a, a bad take. Um, for me, it's been more like, well, what do my unique skills bring to 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 the table? And maybe that's a blind spot in the sense of, you know, maybe for company number five, it's going to be totally different, right? It's going to be something to do with, you know, AR or or autonomous cars or or you know or building a physical product or just something that's outside of my comfort zone. And maybe that would be a a great use of my skill set. But um, back to kind of how do you recreate success? At least so far, my theory of the case has been that, you know, over a career now, I've, I've built relationships and I've built some specific knowledge. And um, I always want to look at opportunities that allow me to leverage things from the past. So for example, if I were to start a company in, autonom um, in um, autonomous driving, let's say, which is a very cool area, and I go look through my LinkedIn connections, well, there's nobody in my LinkedIn that's going to be related to that, to, to automakers or to LiDAR sensors or, or any of those things. Um, I could have done that, but I wouldn't have been able to leverage things right, right. from my past. So, so that's how I've looked at it, and I'm not sure that that's right or wrong. It's just how I've I've looked at it. And, and that, so, what that what does that mean? It's foreclosed um, some opportunities that I, I might be excited about, but wasn't sure how to how to exercise or unlock my network. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. Uh, I, I think this notion of uh, drawing upon not only your experience but sort of your connections and network as a way of guiding you when you make those decisions. I, I think is a is an interesting way of, of kind of attacking that problem. So uh, tell me a little bit more about uh, NAMI uh, ML and uh, how big are you guys? Uh, how are you funded? How long have you been around? Yeah. Um, so we launched. Uh, so we launched at Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference, kind of a, a preview uh, to our early kind of early network of people. Back to that point. Uh, our, our, our portfolio um, of past customers um, in basically June of 2018. But we weren't really in the market until 2019. Um, and, you know, that first year was sort of really a bunch of pilots and small customers and trying to figure out, you know, what this thing is that we're building. I mean, we had a sense of subscription economy and, you know, shifting away from ads and, that privacy was going to become important and kind of these traits, right? But those traits weren't a coherent product vision that's taken some time to arrive at. And so today we're a team of six. Um, we started out and, and because we were fortunate to have some exits before, we self-funded the first little bit and then have subsequently raised um, both angel and institutional uh, money. Um, and what we're really, quite frankly, just trying to be is the marketing system for subscriptions. Because as we look at the landscape, nobody's building a system or has a marketing system. There's a lot of marketing systems, but none of them are tailor-made for the subscription economy. And so that's a big vision, but where we're starting is specifically subscriptions in the mobile space. Based upon our experience and relationships, we, we know that world well. It is more complicated in mobile because you're not just selling on the app store, Google play. There's all these different 
uh, vehicles. And so uh, that's what we're doing and, and kind of how we started. So it's been a few years now um, going into, I guess, year three. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I want to try to understand uh, how this sort of works a little bit uh, from a customer's perspective. Customers meaning your customer, not the end user. So, for example, uh, I have a subscription service. I'm a sailor. So I, I sail, and, and there's this company called Navionics, which sells basically a subscription service for charts, The you know, how, how, to, how to get from point A to point B. And it's an annual fee, and it works on either – Android platforms or uh, Apple platforms across all of those devices. Uh, and so if I'm, if I'm the company Navionics and you walk into my, into my office, I'm the Navionics CEO and you knock on the door and uh, what's your, what's your five minute pitch to me on why I should, I should sign up for your service. So probably what that company has done, which many companies have done that, that are offering a product configured like you mentioned where there's maybe an annual subscription and there's they're on a couple of different marketplaces yep. is that they spend a lot of effort to build the technical infrastructure needed to just sell the subscription so that's that's where we see a lot of people kind of start and end and being able to sell a subscription is really really important right that's the the the, the you know key, we have to have that Super important. But then it turns out that there's other things in the set of capabilities um, that you're going to want. For example, uh, for the, from, the, from their perspective, do they have a good way? Do they have a CRM of all their subscribers? And they, do they know in that CRM what their subscribers purchased on Android, which of their subscribers purchased on Apple? ecosystem or directly from on the web my guess is no because most companies we encounter they don't have that in the ecosystems apple google etc they don't provide that crm so you have these anonymous subscribers they might be tied to a username system or something like that but you don't know the 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 the, the meat and potatoes right, of, right. of that subscriber so that's step one is they probably have the technical infrastructure to sell subscriptions they probably don't have a crm but if they do have a CRM, then the next thing they probably don't have is the unified set of analytics around their subscription base. So a lot of uh, companies have a view into their Apple subscriptions in isolation. Maybe they have a view into their Android subscriptions in isolation, their web subscription uh, in isolation. And in each of those silos, the analytics may be more or less granular. Yeah, and I might have more fidelity in my Android analytics than in my Apple analytics because I'm getting the data from a different place. And, and, and the Google ecosystem does a really good job of having a lot more metadata, let's say. Right. So the next tier is that a company like, like this um, would probably dream of having a unified, reconciled view of their subscriber base regardless of where that you purchased or continue to renew of that subscription. So that's the analytics piece. Yeah. Yeah. Now the next, the next piece. So there's a couple, couple more on this, you know, marketing system. So there's multiple components. The next piece is that, uh, for a lot of companies knowing, okay, where, where are you coming from? How much revenue? That's great. Hey, Dan, but, you're, we're really we're, breaking up here. So, uh, uh, why don't we, why don't we kill the video? Yeah. 
and see if that helps. How's this? Okay. Okay. Well, why don't we take? Why don't we pick it up from there? Is it better now? Uh, sounds better. Yep. Um, yeah, so from an analytics perspective, these companies need that reconciled view. They want that reconciled view, and they probably don't have it. So that's another reason. Uh, they probably have the plumbing to sell the subscription, but they don't have great insight into revenue, the subscriber base, where people are coming from, et cetera. But even if they have that, and we're already two degrees of separation from what most companies have, uh, then one of the next things they're going to want is to grow. And in order to grow your subscription business, part of the battle is how do you acquire more sailors in the case of this company that you're talking about? How do I find sailors? How do I you know, market the product to them, get them in the front door? And then ultimately, once they're in the front door, you know, how do I track their, the revenue coming from the various acquisition channels? Let's say there's a very popular website for sailing you know, uh, or a kind of a community forums, let's say. And maybe this company you're talking about, Navionics, wants to run some advertising on a forum. And they want to be able to measure, was that advertising effective in driving both subscription starts and ultimately people that don't just start the subscription but kind of stay around for a while, yep. maybe renew for a few years. And so kind of attributing the subscription revenue back to where you acquired the customer yeah. Um, yeah. is almost always a problem that these types of companies have um, and don't have solutions for. Yeah. yeah. So, so I understand the notion of, of sort of mining the data that's available out there and sort of trying to figure out how to, how to use it in some of the ways you described. Do, but how, how do you, are there things that you guys do to sort of increase the touch points and at what time the touch points come can should come in order to to kind of make sure that I renew. Yeah, yeah, and so that's the 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 the, the final piece here, which is the purchase experience itself. Uh, most subscription products, um, you know, have that moment where when you first come in, they might put the subscription offer in front of you and say, "Oh, here's the annual price, and here's the value proposition," and you know, tap the button to purchase click the button to subscribe. And you kind of see that at the front end of the experience and maybe you never see it again. But it turns out that that point of purchase, um, that, that paywall or that kind of um, purchase call to action um, should really come back through the life cycle of that user. So for example, um, if you are uh, eight months into your Navionics subscription that's on an annual basis, and, uh, you know, the brand is not sure if you're going to renew in three more months. What they could do is they could present that purchase experience back to you, that touch point, and say, hey, if you subscribe for next year, now, we'll give you a break. Because we want to lock you in for next year. So um, instead of trying to see if you churn in three months, we'll give you a break to go ahead and subscribe now. Uh, and so that, that purchase experience, that paywall, in most of these, especially mobile-first uh, products, that tends to be a hard-coded, believe it or not, a hard-coded screen that never change. It kind of rarely changes. It's owned by the developer persona inside of one of these organizations. It's not treated as a marketing touchpoint that can 
not just show up the first time, but kind of come can come back uh, and utilized as a marketing opportunity, depending on what we know about the user in their life cycle of the subscription. Yeah, yeah, very nice, very nice. Hey, Dan, we've been going at this uh, 35 minutes, believe it or not, uh, time flies. Um, and I want to start wrapping this up. So is there is there something that uh, I have not asked you that I should have or that you'd like to share with our audience? Sure. Um, it's always that question, you know, I'll bring it back to entrepreneurship. I could talk about a lot more about NAMI and kind of, you know, how you find us and all that. But but the thing I, I do like to talk about sometimes um, when, when, when we start some of these conversations more around startup life and entrepreneurship is, is around finding that, that kind of balance. Um, in my first three companies, I did not do a good job at this. Uh, um, I, you know, was so invested sometimes that led to burnout. And so I just always like to use opportunities when I talk to folks to, to say, you know, it, 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 it's not um, incompatible to both be an entrepreneur and uh, and create work-life balance or, or take moments for yourself and, you know, whether that's to work out or to um, just step away. In fact, one of the things I've learned as I've done this more and more is that uh, the more you actually are able to step away, the more it kind of helps your mind open up to see problems that you, that you wouldn't have seen um, if you were kind of so in the weeds or kind of getting approaching burnout. Um, working hard isn't a isn't the input that generates the output of success. Right. Of course, you have to work hard. Yeah. Um, so I just encourage new people, you know, new entrepreneurs, new people that are doing this for the first time, or maybe this is the fourth time like me, is that, is that uh, you don't have to run, run the race as a sprint. It is a marathon, and you need to take care of yourself too. Yeah. Well, that's a, a great way to wrap up this uh, podcast. You're a wonderful guest. Those are great words of wisdom. Uh, thank you very much for being on the show, Dan. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So, Bela, this is another classic unconventional path story. You know, Dan really followed his curiosity and he's been great at mixing up kind of this large company experiences, learning things, kind of finding an opportunity and then jumping back into the startup space. What struck you most about your conversation with Dan? So the thing that really jumped out at me is is he's a, a, a great example of a person that's moving faster, is learning faster than our education system enables you to do, right? So he was doing things that were beyond sort of his peers within his age group in school. So he was self-taught. He had a curious mind. And, you know, when I was in school, uh, I was out mowing lawns to make extra money. And, and Dan was building websites for people. So I think, you know, there's, there's this opportunity that, that I think because of the information and knowledge that's available these days in, in such a, a large amount and with such easy access to, from the internet, it enables people to self-learn uh, and to learn at their pace much easier than it was in the past. And I think Dan is a great example of taking uh, advantage of that, uh, where he was self-taught in many of these things, and he then leveraged each one of those into like a new position 
and new opportunities, uh, which is exactly what many entrepreneurs do, right? They, they, take, they take an experience, they build on it, and then they move on to the next, next uh, opportunity. They recognize an opportunity, they, they take advantage of that one, and they build, and build on that one, build out their experience base, build out their capabilities, and then move on again. So I thought that was one of the things that, that really uh, struck me in my conversation with Dan. And I think this notion of uh, cycling through entrepreneurship in sort of different contexts, right? Th this notion of, you know, he worked at some big companies and he founded smaller companies. And, and he talked about this notion of, of sort of being able to see the big picture and his desire uh, to want to see the big picture. And he felt sort of handcuffed in a large company in his ability to do that. Uh, but he did get that perspective and experience of being in a larger company and understanding, uh, you know, kind of processes and workflow and all those things that you sort of have to have as a, as an enterprise starts to grow. So those were two things that that really sort of jumped out at me. Yeah, Bela, you know, you're you're saying this and it really kind of clicks in my head and in a way that I've never thought about before. And that is that sometimes you need to be in a big organization to really see the problems that are out there. But those problems then, which become opportunities, can only be solved by a startup or somebody really small and agile. The big company where you see the problem isn't the right kind of format to solve the problem. And that's where I think this pattern that we saw with, with Dan that he told you about was really fascinating. So it was one of these, these things where you, you, get, you use the big company for the ability to see and then you go to the startup for the ability to act and respond quickly. So I think that's kind of cool. And then the other piece to this is you kind of talked a little bit about this. And I'm always fascinated by these boundary spanners. It's like these people that can speak multiple languages fluently. So, you know, he went from marketing to tech to operations. Um, and I always think that that's really amazing that people can do this so seamlessly. Is this kind of a skill or an attribute, this ability to be a boundary spanner? Is this something you saw a lot of in your VC days, Bela? Well, I, I, you see a lot of it in, in entrepreneurs that are successful. And, and uh, because you see a broad set of skills in successful entrepreneurs, very rarely is it a narrow, narrow set of skills. Uh, and if it is, then, then you're the, the chief technology officer or you're the you know, technology founder of a business. Uh, and because that's what you do well and, that, and that's where you stay, which is fine and, and wonderful and that's great. But I think if you look at sort of the successful large companies and, and uh, even growing companies or, or successful small companies, the entrepreneurs that lead them understand the big picture. They get the big picture. And I think understanding this kind of large picture is where the big improvements and innovation happens. Right. So it's the synthesis of, of various different components and, and putting to get putting them together in sort of new novel ways where we get the large uh, increment, not incremental, but large steps in, in improving of products or services. Uh, it doesn't come from the uh, large, as you said, the large company with taking small little steps. You know, every year they make a 10 percent improvement in the product. It's the person that can span all those things look at them and say, you know what, I'm going to put them together in a different way. I'm going to, I'm going to mix up the ingredients a little bit. And I think that's where you get the, the large innovations. Let me give you an example, right? So I go back to the iPod. Remember the iPod? Totally. That was the, Still have yeah, one. The, yeah. yeah, the thing that you could listen to music on, right? And 
as I like to talk about it, the iPod made it possible for my father, who at the time was like in his late 70s, uh, to get music. And it made it a seamless experience. So, so prior to that, I can remember uh, buying my father an MP3 player. And, and I almost regretted it because every time he bought a new CD, he'd call me up and I'd have to go over to his house. I'd have to take that CD. I'd have to rip it into an MP3 file. And then I had to take that file and download it onto his MP3 player. And it was, a, it was a, you know, it took me 45 minutes or whatever. And what did Apple do with the iPod? They made the buying the music and listening to the music one seamless experience. There was nothing else involved. You picked out the song you wanted or the album you wanted. You put in your money and it magically appeared on your little player. It basically took all those steps that I was doing or that other people were doing to, to get the music there and put it together in a different way. And that was a huge improvement. It, did it involve any new technology? Not really. But it was taking existing technology and putting it together in a different way. And I think in order to accomplish that, you have to be able to look at the big picture. You have to be able to looking at what are we trying to do? What problem are we trying to solve? We're trying to solve the buying the music to listening to the music in a seamless process. As opposed to sometimes, particularly technology entrepreneurs or technology inventors, they get so engrossed in one little aspect of it that they lose sight of the big picture. And I think this is where Dan shined, right? He, or Dan shines, where he has this ability to, to take a step back and, and look at the big picture and, and sort of understand what's going on. So I, I, really, I really like that part of it, right? And I also, I also like how he understands the role of the, how the role of the entrepreneur changes as the business grows, right? His goals changed. His behaviors changed. And, and he, he, remember he talked about this notion of they all used to eat lunch together. And then at some point in time, they weren't, he weren't all eating lunch together. He, that he used to be involved in every decision that happened in the business. And as the company grew, he wasn't involved in every decision. And, and I think that's a really number one, recognizing that that happens and, and then thinking about it consciously and, and, and changing your behavior as an entrepreneur and a founder is really important if you're going to grow with the business. So what did you think about that, Mike? Yeah, I, I totally agree, Bella. And I guess another thing that I liked was how he admitted that he wasn't fully prepared to make the growth-oriented decisions that he did. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs are not prepared for growth. I think that they have this idea to launch this product and they get it to the market. And that's kind of the end of the horizon of their, right, of, the, of their vision. It was just a huge sprint to get this thing to the marketplace. But then to really be commercially successful, you have to scale it. You have to grow it. And I think, you know, the key is to this is to be able to admit this to yourself, usually privately, but in, in Dan's case, he's very open about it and ask for help in executing the growth, right? To bring in some, some people who are seasoned in, if it's a B2B product or a consumer product that have the ability of scaling production or scaling delivery of a service or filling large orders within a distribution chain. And then you can face the customer and the public um, to make sure that you can grow successfully. So you've built a team and you've given up some power, right? To bring in a team that can help you manage this growth. And I also like how he explained, along with this idea of growing your sales and your revenue, of the entrepreneur's kind of learning curve. 
that some things get easier and some things get harder as you progress down an entrepreneurial path. And he was very open about his struggles. And I think that's a really valuable skill, this ability to be open, to reflect, and to share. That's really, really important that a lot of entrepreneurs don't have. And it was great that you kind of pulled that out of him and he was able to share that with their listeners. And I hope the listeners picked up on that and and, and that's something that they can appreciate too. Yeah, and, and I think that's a pretty rare trait to 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 talk about that, <laughs> you know, openly. And mm-hmm. and maybe you, maybe if you have a if you have a career coach or a mentor or something like that, or you belong to a CEO group, you know, that's one of the things that you can discuss. And that's one of the benefits of having uh, that type of uh, re- those types of relationships, whether it be with a coach or a, a CEO group or an affinity group of some sort, where you can sort of openly have those conversations because it is different. Right. And, and it, it always amazed me back in, in my VC days where I'd asked the question of, well, what happens if this thing really works? <laughs> right. And yeah. people weren't prepared for that answer. Yeah. Right. Cause they're so sort of focused on trying to get the thing to work and, and, and you say, okay, let, let's assume it works. Now what happens, right? What, what's going to happen to this? This thing could be freaking huge. How are we going to be prepared for that? And and people often get so caught up in the weeds, as they say, that they don't step back and take a look at the big picture. And then looking at that picture, mapping their skills or their lack of skills in particular areas onto that, and then figuring out how am I going to build out the the organization to be able to 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 get to that next next step in the business's life. Yeah. The passion that it takes to found a business, Bela, is a double-edged sword, right? Because that same passion that gets you to launch the business sometimes gets in the way of scaling and growing the business. Absolutely. Well said. Well said. I think we should wrap it up on that note, Mike. All right, let's do it. So thanks for joining us today, listeners. Kind of as a brief wrap-up, you know, we talked with Dan Burkaw, who really showed us the value of being a boundary spanner and cross-disciplinary. He showed us the value of spending time both at large companies and at small companies. And we really saw the connection between kind of, we talk about opportunity seeking, right? And understanding opportunities and being able to see that from these different perspectives really has helped him become an excellent serial entrepreneur, help him understand this new tech space, in his case, machine learning, uh, which I think is really cool. Um, and, And really this idea of understanding the life cycle and the growth of an entrepreneur. Uh, that not only our business goes through a growth curve and a life cycle, but so does the entrepreneur. And you need to be kind of humble and open about when you need help moving from one phase of this to the next. So I thought a great interview, Bela. Thanks for uh, pulling it all together. Listeners, we hope you found the episode as interesting and thought-provoking as we did. And of course, if you have questions about what we've discussed or have suggestions for a guest or comments or complaints, feel free to get in touch with us. Our email, as always, is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And hey, if you like the podcast, uh, hit that follow button in your favorite podcasting application. And even better yet, tell a friend and get them to listen as well. So until next time, signing off from upstate New York. See you soon, Mike. Thanks, Bela, from over here in Münster, Germany. See you soon.